Welcome back to the Internet Bible Institute's fifth study in the book of Matthew with the focus on the Olivet Discourse. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International and your teacher for this course. In our last classes, we saw the public ministry of our Lord come to an end and all that remained before his return to the Father was the Upper Room Discourse, <coughs> the Garden, the Cross, and the resurrection. His ministry as prophet had ended with his public ministry and his priestly role had begun. On that quiet hillside of Mount Olivet, the Lord answered the disciples' second question in Matthew 24, verse 3, when he said, What shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world, or as we explained in the last class, the end of the age, the pre-Messianic age. You see, the disciples earnestly want to know the indications or conditions that would precede the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom age. Beginning with verse 4, the Lord revealed the future tribulation period that Israel would have to go through because she re rejected God and his son, the Messiah. He told them that this time of severe testing would transform Israel's rejection into acceptance and bring restoration to his beloved nation and the entire earth as he ruled from Israel as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord answered their question, though, by giving them a chronological timeline of events, if you will, as signposts pointing to the time of Israel's redemption and restoration. When dealing with Israel, God uses signs, for as the Apostle Paul has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, the Jews require a sign. Although God had found Israel guilty of rejecting him and his kingdom, and therefore he had to punish her in his love. He pl planned to bring the nation to repentance and restoration. In our previous sessions, we've been considering the step-by-step -step trial process that God has been using to bring Israel to this point. Step one was the accusation, did ye never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Step two was the witnesses' testimony. The Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, the 70 disciples sent out, and finally, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. Step three was the indictment. The legal act of bringing the accused before the court after enough evidence was presented to suggest wrongdoing. Step four was the twofold judgment. First of all, the temple would be destroyed, and second, the Jewish people would be dispersed around the world as the kingdom offer and God's presence through his Son was withdrawn from that generation. The Lord said, Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation or a people, bringing forth the fruits thereof in Matthew 21, verse 43. And then he went on to say, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's in Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39. 
Step five was the punishment that was carried out in AD 70 when the Roman army destroyed the temple and Jerusalem became trodden down of the Gentiles. But notice, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Luke 21, 24. Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We're still in the times of the Gentiles. Most Jewish people today are unaware that the sixth step in God's trial process yet awaits them in the future. This step will end Israel's subjection to the Gentiles and restore God's presence in Israel as the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth as her king. The Olivet Discourse relates the means or the process God will use to bring Israel to her knees, crying out to him in repentance. Now, before we begin looking into this, we must first consider three factors that significantly influence our interpretation and understanding of the Olivet Discourse, especially the very next portion as we move into chapter 24. We're now ready to see the three factors that influence our interpretation and understanding of the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. First, we must consider how the Olivet Discourse relates to the church and what believers should understand and know about Matthew 24. Second, we must consider how presuppositions influence our understanding of the discourses and establish some of our own understanding. Third, we must recognize the divisions of the discourse. It is actually divided up into three parts. So let's look now first at the first factor, the relationship of the church to the discourse. The disciples long for the day when they would reign with their Lord in his kingdom. But before that day would come, he had an important task for them to accomplish. They were to be the foundation stones of Christ's bride, the church, with him as the head or cornerstone. See, according to the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, the church would be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, since Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse focuses solely on the nation of Israel and its tribulation events preceding the return of the Messiah, he passes over prophecies that relate to the church. On the other hand, Luke, in the role of the first church historian, introduces a church age aspect into this account as a parenthesis of the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21. Please turn to Luke 21. In Luke 21, we're going to look at beginning really at verse 12. Notice how he begins. But before these things... What things? Well, he's been talking about the events of the tribulation. That is thus that he is saying before the the events of the tribulation, I'm going to give you a eight-verse parenthesis where the Lord prophetically outlined what will happen to the disciples during the early days of the church. Interestingly, as we will see later, these very things that will happen to them will also happen to believers during the tribulation. So he is telling the disciples, you're going to experience this, but in experiencing this, so too will those believers in the tribulation. For you see, the disciples prefigured the saved Jewish and Gentile peoples in Israel during the tribulation. So let's read this parenthesis at this point. We'll begin again with verse 12, and we'll read through verse 18. But before all these things, 
They shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which, which all of your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay or resist." And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not a hair of your head perish. Uh, that word perish could be lost or destroyed. You see, Jesus Christ began warning them that the same Jewish leadership that rejected him, just, just back as we saw on that Palm Sunday, would persecute them as well. Furthermore, Gentile kings and rulers would join with Jewish persecutors in verse 12. In verse 13, he notes that this would turn to their advantage, for doors of opportunity would open to them to give irrefutable testimony of the Lord. We know from Mark 13.10 that the, the scriptures they would write would add to their verbal testimony, enabling the gospel of salvation to spread throughout the world right down to our own day, and we can read those same words. Now, according to Luke's account in verses 14 and 15, they didn't need to be anxious uh, when they're brought before authorities. For God promised to them wisdom and words that could not be resisted. Regrettably, even their family and friends would betray some of these disciples, and some would be martyred. But even in this, God promised in verse 18, There shall not a hair of your head perish or be lost. This was a proverbial expression of their day. It was promising the Lord's eternal preservation and assuring them that they will rule with him as he promised. Luke recorded the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy to his disciples in his second historical book, the book, The Acts of the Apostles. And John recorded the future fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy to the tribulation saints in the book of Revelation. Since Matthew's purpose was to present Jesus of Nazareth as the king of Israel, he precludes the disciples' role in the church and instead uses them to represent primarily the Jewish godly people that will live during the tribulation. Having looked at the first factor, we're going to look at the second factor, how our presuppositions either help us or hinder us as we study the Olivet Discourse. You see, over the centuries, people have interpreted the prophecies of this Olivet Discourse in numerous ways. These differences arise from the presuppositions that influence each individual's understanding of the text. Our presuppositions either help or hinder us in understanding Christ's words as we read them recorded on this discourse. Recognizing the importance of presuppositions, I'm going to state mine before delving into the next portion of the study. See, I want you to understand why I see these verses the way I see them, the why I understand what Christ said to be what the way I take them, which is in this simple, clear, straightforward sense. You see, as a futurist, I interpret all of Matthew 24 from verses 4 through 51 as prophecies to be fulfilled after the rapture or catching up of the believers at the end of the church age. Therefore, in Matthew 24, I do not believe the church is mentioned, nor are these prophecies that we will see in our day. Until the rapture occurs, church believers will not experience these things, for they are going to be taken out at the rapture and will be removed and be with the Lord during the times described in Matthew 24. 
with the exception of Matthew 24 and verse 2, that's the prophecy of the temple's destruction that was fulfilled in A.D. 70, I believe that the doctrines of the imminency of the rapture preclude any fulfillment of other prophecies prior to the rapture. Now, the imminency concept means that it could happen at any second, perhaps even before we're done doing this class. I do recognize, however, that stage setting, or if you will, the preparatory arranging of circumstances and conditions that must be in place before the tribulation begins will be observable prior to the rapture. If you will, as we see things arranging on the world stage, we can say, I think we're getting close to the rapture, and then Matthew 24 will occur after that. This stage setting includes the alignments of nations, a significant one, the rebirth of Israel as a nation. Why, even in our own day, as we look at Russia, Iran, Iraq, we see how the nations are starting to come into place, much as we would expect in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which in a separate class I have taught will occur immediately after the rapture of the church. You see, I believe the Olivet Discourse primarily is intended for the nation of Israel and believers during the tribulation who will be both Jewish and Gentiles. I believe the Olivet Discourse is to be interpreted by reading it in its literal, or a better term would be its normal sense, recognizing that certainly there are going to be in your Bible uh, metaphors, similes, uh, that would help us to understand what we're reading. But we take it much as we'd read a newspaper in its normal sense, if you read in the newspaper that yesterday it rained cats and dogs, you know it didn't rain down a cat and a dog. It meant it was a heavy downpour. So we read it in our normal sense. But when a newspaper said at 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon, we say, well, oh, that meant 3 o'clock. It wasn't just an idea of, well, sometime in yesterday. So that's taking it in the normal sense. That sense, which would have been understood in the historical setting, though, of the time that it was given, and in consideration of the grammar of the text. In other words, when the disciples heard the Lord Jesus Christ give them this discourse, how did they understand it in their day? We, we don't want to read our culture into it. That's the literal or normal sense. Finally, I believe that any correct interpretation of the Olivet Discourse requires a total harmonization with parallel records of Mark and Luke and other related Old Testament prophetic passages, as well as passages from the book of Revelation. For simplicity, I'm going to primarily focus on Matthew's account and bring other passages in as we need for clarification. Having seen the first two factors, we now need to recognize the threefold division of the discourse. As we study Matthew 24, and we see that it breaks down into three divisions, this will help us in our study. In verses 4 through 14, it speaks of, if you'll notice in verse 9, all these are the beginning of sorrows. This is the beginning of the tribulation, the beginning of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Verses 15 through 28 then describe what is called in verse 21 the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation, this is a biblical designation for the cataclysmic second half of the tribulation. And then in verses 29 through 31, we see that these deal with events following the tribulation. So in verse 29, it says, immediately after the tribulation. So the first segment is the first three and a half years of the tribulation. The second division is the second three and a half years of the division. And then finally, Matthew gives us some of the events that follow the tribulation that are significant. 
Now, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And Matthew writes, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso read, let him understand. See, the Holy Spirit prompted Matthew to add, Whoso readeth, let him understand. That's for the readers, not only for us, but during the tribulation period. Matthew is making an important point that the reader should understand what is going on, and that understanding includes the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel. You see, Matthew is basically saying to the reader, I want you to go back and recall what Daniel said about this. You see, you can't just take scripture in isolated segments. It all fits together. Matthew is saying, think back now. Do you understand what Daniel wrote? So we're going to have to do just what Matthew has suggested. We're going to go back to Daniel chapter 9 to fill in some details that he wants us to be sure that we know about as we continue to understand what he, Matthew, has written. So we go back to Daniel chapter 9. And let's see what it is that Matthew really wanted us to understand. Matthew tells us, basically, that there is a starting and ending point for the divisions. Because he said, at this point, when the abomination... Daniel speaks of the tribulation here in chapter 9 of Daniel as the 70th week prophecy. You see, God outlined the history of Israel's relationship to the Messiah by giving a 70-week prophecy. The 69 weeks came to an end when Jesus Christ presented himself on that Palm Sunday in Israel, exactly to the day of 69 prophetic weeks. In Daniel 9.27 now, we read of the two divisions of the tribulation that Matthew has just indicated to us. So look at Matthew 9 and look at verse 27. And he, that means the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. A, a week, a prophetic week in Daniel is seven years of length. So the Antichrist is going to confirm a covenant for seven years. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice, the oblation or offerings to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So, uh, basically, Daniel has said to us, there's a beginning and an ending. The first division, both of Matthew and of Daniel's indication here, will begin with the confirmation of a covenant between the Antichrist and the many, the Jewish people of Israel. It will end when he breaks this covenant by causing, and notice Daniel carefully says, the, the oblations and sacrifice to cease and the occurrence of the overspreading of abominations. Now, the words um, oblation, uh, sacrifice, excuse me, sacrifice, can only refer to the feast sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. These are the events that ended with the temple's destruction in 70 AD. But according to this verse, the Antichrist will allow Israel to reestablish their covenant relationship by sacrificing and offerings at the temple site in Jerusalem. Now, I've explained this much more fully in my book on the Feasts of Israel, where I have demonstrated from the scriptures that Daniel here is referring to the sacrifice that is offered at the Feast of Trumpets. This Feast of Trumpets or Remembrance, I believe, is the feast that inaugurates the sacrifices at the temple site at the start of the tribulation. 
Uh, in my separate study on Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Battle of Gog, Magog, I carefully explain how that feast inaugurates the tribulation and that the covenant referred to here is the allowance of Israel to reestablish covenant relationships with her Lord by sacrificing. Now, the overspreading of abomination is what Jesus is referring to in the Olivet Discourse as the abomination of desolation, back in verse 15 of Matthew. It portends the Antichrist's act of sacrilege when he ends temple sacrifice and sets himself up to be worshipped as God. According to Daniel, the second division will begin, obviously, when the first division ends, with the ending of sacrifices and this act of abomination of desolation. The second division will end with the consummation, when God concludes his discipline upon Jerusalem, upon his people, and the nation of Israel. Thus, in verse 27, even until the consummation. In other words, you see, he's going to start the tribulation with the covenant. Three and a half years into it, he's going to break this covenant with Israel. And that next period of time, three and a half years, will continue until the consummation. In other words, God completes what he is trying to accomplish in the tribulation for the nation of Israel. Israel as a nation will have been brought to her knees in repentance and will be cleansed of her sin, according to Daniel in Daniel 9, verse 24. Please turn there to 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. Daniel's people are as Israel. And upon the holy city, notice, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. You see that? Seventy weeks. Seventy times seven gives us the number of years. It's going to finish the transgression that Israel has completed, make an end of her sins, going to bring reconciliation for the nation and righteousness, and it will anoint the most holy. That's bringing in the Messiah, the most holy. Clearly, Daniel was speaking of the same divisions of the tribulation period as was Matthew. Now, the Matthew passage also should remind the reader of other prophecies in the Old Testament, one of which is Jeremiah, because in Matthew 24, 8, we're told the beginning of sorrows, literally the beginning of birth pangs. Now, Jeremiah used the same allusion. Jeremiah prophesied of Israel's future birth pangs in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 4 through 7. So turn with me to Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah 30, verses 4 through 7, we read, And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see, whether a man doth travail with a child, or have labor pains literally with a child? Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, or in labor, and all faces are turned into paleness, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. The time of Jacob's trouble is a common Old Testament term for Israel's future tribulation. Jeremiah used the illustration of a woman who must go through the pain and travail of childbirth until her baby is delivered. Later in that chapter, he even indicates that this chapter is in the latter times, in other words, during the times of the tribulation. This is a future time when Israel must go through a painful period of suffering until she is delivered by the Messiah and spiritually reborn as a nation when she is reconciled to God. 
Paul employed a similar illustration in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 when he described the midpoint of the tribulation, where he said, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Recognizing the harmonization of these passages in Daniel, Jeremiah, and Matthew regarding the two divisions of the tribulation, we can add one more illustration from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. John was instructed to depict judgments and indicate the two periods of the tribulation by using the symbols of seals, trumpets, and vials. When we place Revelation 6 alongside of Matthew 24, Daniel, and Jeremiah, we have a a correlation, if you will, between the first five seals of Revelation and the starting and ending points of the first half of the tribulation. For example, Matthew 24, 5 introduces the idea of false Christs coming to Israel at the start of the tribulation and deceiving many. While in Revelation 6, verse 2, John speaks of a crown conqueror who parallels Daniel's description of the conquering Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7. You see, spiritual deception is the hallmark of Satan and his ultimate false Christ, as a study of biblical passages relating to the Antichrist reveals to us. Thus, Matthew's description of the Antichrist in tribulation events parallels the descriptions of John, of Daniel, and of Jeremiah. So let's now begin looking carefully at each of the three divisions of Matthew 24 in order to discover the chronology of the tribulation based on the Olivet Discourse and its related passages. In this session, we'll consider the first half of the tribulation, the first division. We already know that the tribulation will officially begin when Israel makes a covenant with the Antichrist. According again, as we read earlier in Daniel 9.27, Israel will be granted permission to resume sacrificing and worship on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and as a result will dwell in peace and safety. Obviously, the stage setting before this event allows the Antichrist to move into a position of authority that will enable him to make the covenant between the Gentile nations and Israel. It is this event that starts the tribulation clock ticking. So the, as we begin our study of the tribulation in Matthew, we find that the first sign of the actual tribulation that has begun is spiritual deception. See, immediately following the rapture of the church, there will be no righteous people living upon the earth. Remember, the rapture removes all true believers who are righteous. Therefore, after the rapture, at that point, right after, there will be nobody saved. This will provide Satan with a window of opportunity to use deception to achieve his goal of being worshipped like God. You see, he wants to if you will, jump in quickly before people start getting saved and start uh, turning to the Lord. So he's going to use human beings to try to achieve his ends. This explains why the Lord warns those entering the tribulation. Notice in Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus answered, said unto them, Take heed, take heed that no man deceive you. Deception is the first sign that people of the tribulation should be aware of. For verse 5 says, Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. This warning indicates that many individuals in Israel will claim to be the Messiah during the early days of the tribulation, and many will be deceived. Notice here we have in verse 5, For many shall come, and then he again receives, repeats, many shall be deceived. By repeating the word many, it is reflecting the, in some ways, 
the extreme emphasis in the original language. This explains the power and influence of these false Christ's deceivers. They will exercise over religious faiths at the start of the tribulation. They will be in part enable a supra-religion to come together that would worship the Antichrist. Uh, I explain this a little more in detail in our book on the European Union and the supra-religion. Now, the ultimate Antichrist not only will attain the highest position of religious authority over the worldwide religion, but also will hold the highest positions of authority over world government and commerce. In the first seal judgment of Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2, we see that the Antichrist is pictured as the conquering one, a term suggestive of a long, ongoing series of political victories that laid the groundwork for his initial success in creating the covenant and his eventual claim to be the Christ. I would note at this point that some people believe that this first seal pictures Jesus Christ instead of the Antichrist. This, this isn't a viable interpretation because it is the Lamb that opens the seals and that represents Jesus Christ, making it unlikely that he is picturing himself as the, also the instrument creating these events of the seals. Uh, we all know that the first four seals are often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, the other three horsemen of Revelation 6 are essentially similar in their purpose and actions, and they contrast sharply with the Lord Jesus Christ, who would, if you will, appear out of place among the other three horsemen if the first horseman were Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we can notice that the first horseman wears a victor's wreath and carries a bow, whereas our conquering Lord, when he's pictured in Revelation, particularly in Revelation 19, he comes wearing many diadems, those are authority crowns, and he is bearing a sword, not a bow. Now, this weapon, the bow, obviously requires something else, arrows which are, by the way, not mentioned in Revelation 6 too. He's just carrying a bow. But a sword is sufficient as a weapon to itself. It needs no additional parts to it. In other words, a bow needs arrows, but a sword is a sword. Uh, Jesus Christ is going to conquer with a quick and powerful sword of the God's word. So we have a significant difference there in the weapon, if you will, of that first horseman and that of Jesus Christ. The link between the returning Lord of Revelation 19 and the first horseman of the tribulation would mean that Christ returns also and conquers. Notice this, at the beginning of the tribulation, it's the first seal. Therefore, if Jesus Christ were this conqueror of Revelation 6-2, this would be the beginning of the tribulation. That would negate the tribulation's entire purpose and actually would conflict with many other prophecies of the Bible that indicate clearly that re Jesus Christ returns at the end. When we consider these strong arguments, it's reasonable to conclude that the first horseman of the apocalypse is not Jesus Christ, but is a personification of a growing movement or force that will be at work during the early stages of the tribulation and they will ultimately culminate with the Antichrist rising to the top of a group of claimants of being Christ pretenders and he will achieve his height by Revelation 13. Revelation 6 in verse 2 indicates that he will achieve this in a bloodless way as his weapons, the bow, is without arrows. That suggests that he didn't have to do it by war. I believe in recognition of his accomplishment in promoting world peace by settling the Middle East problem with Israel and the Temple Mount without war. 
he will be awarded a victor's wreath, not a kingly crown. See the significant difference? The wreath described in Revelation 6.2 is an award to a victor in a, in, a, in a contest. But of Jesus Christ, his diadems are kingly crowns. Significant difference there. Thus, we could summarize the chronology of the first division of the tribulation with the following chart. Please note these charts will be available on our website following this class. Just as the world breathes easy, wars will break out in the Middle East and in various parts throughout the world. If you look at Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. The end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom kingdom. The Lord was warning that this is going to come upon the world as the next stage. Now always keep in mind that the Olivet Discourse was written from the perspective of a Jewish person living in Jerusalem. Therefore it will be from Israel that they will hear of wars and potential conflicts developing between nations and kingdoms throughout the world. This worldwide upheaval will be the consequence of the opening of the second seal of Revelation 6, the one that will release the second horseman riding the red horse. This is described in Revelation 6, verses 3 through 4. So we turn back to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. And when he had opened the second seal, the he is Jesus Christ, the Lamb, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. Power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they shall kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Instead of a bow without arrows, this horseman will be given a great sword, representing his power to take peace from the earth through war. Now, with the opening of the third seal, the black horse, the third horseman of Revelation 6, we will see that he will now be released. And we read in verse, verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So here we have the third seal. This third seal, the third horseman of the apocalypse, it is called sometimes, he is coming on a black horse. Without question, the symbol of the black horse is the idea of bringing prob uh, of death and disease. You see, we have famine and earthquakes throughout the world, just as Jesus Christ had warned back in Matthew 24. So now we have to go back to Matthew 24. And we'll look specifically at verse at 7 again, but notice the end of the verse this time. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. What we have here is the cumulative consequences of the first three seals. They're going to cause the, a fourth seal to be open, which is going to release the fourth horse, a pale horse that is ridden by death. So we read there, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. 
and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. This rider will be given the power to kill one-fourth of the earth's population using war, starvation, and wild beasts. As we bring all these together, our chronology and our chart will now include these events. In sharp contrast to the many lying deceivers who will appear during the early part of the tribulation, God will send two Old Testament saints as witnesses to speak his truth to humanity. According to the Apostle John in Revelation 11, God will bring these two saints back to life for this very purpose. So turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 and we'll start with verse 3 and I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days that's half a tribulation that's three and a half years clothed in sackcloth these are two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must be in this manner be killed. So even Listerine isn't going to protect them. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, have power over waters to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they had finished their testimony... The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Therefore, we're speaking about in Jerusalem. And they of the people and kindreds, tongues, nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelled on the earth. And after three and a half days, the spirit of life from God entered into them. They stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. These two saints have a very special purpose in life. God designates the exact time of their ministry and tells us about the end of their ministry on the earth. Now, as you know, there is much debate as to who these two witnesses are. Um, I believe they were uh, originally, I thought they were Elijah and Enoch, and that you, you may believe that also. But Dr. John Whitcomb, who was a professor I had at seminary and who has become a friend through the years, and, and I truly respect him for his teaching, a few years ago I heard him present a paper on who the two witnesses are. Now keep in mind, God does not tell us who the two witnesses are, so we're all trying to conclude who they are. But Dr. Whitcomb gave some very convincing arguments that the two witnesses consisted of Moses and Elijah. Now I'd like to just briefly suggest how that could well be and the key to this is really turning back to Malachi chapter 4. For the first reason I believe that these witnesses would be Moses and Elijah is really found in, these, in this passage of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4 we read beginning in verse 4 the final words by Malachi to Israel, in fact, the final words by God to Israel for 400 years of silence until Jesus Christ and John the Baptist's ministry begins. So Malachi 4, verse 4, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Uh, notice the law. That's the covenant. 
And remember, the tribulation begins with a restoration of covenant worship. Then verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Clearly here, we have this concept that uh, Moses and Elijah are involved in Malachi 4.4 because Moses, his law, the covenant, and Elijah is specifically mentioned. By the way, there's no debate that one of the witnesses has to be Elijah. Okay, a second thought, though. If we go to the Mount of Transfiguration, we see there with the Lord discussing with who? Moses and Elijah, his coming death. And I believe then the results of that death and how the kingdom will still come. Thirdly, we study the activities that John describes of these two witnesses and we compare them to some of the events that they carried on back in Israel's history and we find that they're very similar. So that would suggest, again, Moses and Elijah. Fourthly, both are key people in both Israel's past and still today studied and talked about. Therefore, it's fitting for them to have this ministry that is described in Revelation during the tribulation. That ministry, their evangelistic and warning ministry will extend from the beginning of the tribulation to its midpoint, exactly three and a half years long. Many will be saved by their testimonies during those days. During that time, they will be invincible, stopping the rain, causing plagues, and quelling all opposition with their God-given fiery breath until God now allows them to be brutally killed. When they suddenly come to life after three and a half days and stand up before the very eyes of those celebrating their deaths, we're told fear will fall on all the Christ-rejecting humanity as the witnesses are taken up to heaven before their very eyes. Now, as a result of their witness and their testimony, we are told 144,000 Jewish men, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, will believe in the true Messiah, according to Revelation 7. And these 144,000 witnesses will go throughout the entire world preaching the gospel of salvation. If you turn back to Matthew 24, this should trigger and explain why Jesus Christ makes his statement in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. You see that? During the tribulation, the worst time in history to be on the earth, the gospel will be proclaimed to every corner of the earth. And then will come the end. Remember the context is the tribulation. God will have a tremendous witness. First the two uh, saints, and then the 144,000, and then those who are saved on their ministry will share with others. According to Revelation 7, 9, great numbers from all nations will be saved by their testimony. We read, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Wow, what a tremendous time of evangelization. Now, obviously at this time, Satan's going to realize that he must counter this growing evangelistic movement that will develop after the rapture and begin with the testimony of the two witnesses. If Satan is to achieve his goal of world domination and worship, Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14 say he, he declares he wants to rule the world like Christ. He wants to have the worship of the world like Christ. He, he can't have believers in the true Jesus Christ running around proclaiming the truth. Satan has to react to this and has to try to stop it. 
According again to Revelation 6 and verses 9-11, when the seal is opened, he's going to launch a worldwide persecution of true believers. Many will be martyred. So we go back <laughs> to Revelation chapter 6 and in verse 9, we read, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The sixth seal of Revelation chapter 6, beginning verses 12, will bring a cataclysmic worldwide earthquake and disasters involving the sun, moon, and stars. Instead of turning to God and to his son, men will try to hide themselves from him in the rocks and caves. And we read in Revelation 6, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as the fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven depart as a scroll when it is rolled uh, together. And every mountain and island was moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, notice this now, and the great men and the rich men and their chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves from the dens in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from, notice, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. It is at this point that God will end what may be called providential judgments upon the Gentile world and will begin direct judgments that are designed to bring Israel to her knees in repentance and to turn to the Lord as her Messiah. He will also begin judging non-believers for their mistreating of Israel, not only in the tribulation, but throughout all history. Thus, our chronology of the first half of the tribulation now looks like this chart. We've just seen that Matthew has described the prevailing conditions of the unbeliever's heart by the end of the first half of the tribulation. When he said in verse 12, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Many years ago, as I worked in industry as a new engineer, I closely observed those who were over me. I had one supervisor who I deeply respected and I learned much about leadership from. I came to realize that what I had been told about leadership was absolutely true. That those who follow a leader will soon take on themselves the characteristics of that leader. This is not only true in industry, but is also true in other situations. For example, in the political world, the president and his administration will often, the decisions they make, the way they behave, will pass all the way through government and into the culture and society. Well, in the tribulation now, after three and a half years of tribulation, the majority of non-believers will now follow Satan's man, the Antichrist, and take on the characteristics of that Antichrist. Just as Matthew later describes in verse 37 of Matthew 24, just as in the days of Noah, so too by the midpoint of the tribulation, iniquity, or a better translation would be lawlessness, shall abound. You see, just as just before the flood, lawlessness abounded, and Noah, of course, was rescued, so too in this tribulation period will lawlessness abound just before Jesus Christ rescues the believers. 
This period will mark such a departure from God's standards that anarchy will prevail, thereby enabling the Antichrist to seize the opportunity to gain worldwide control. You see, as everything becomes chaotic, lawless, and anarchy, the people of the world will say, we need one man who's strong enough who will now take control and control everything and bring peace and safety. He needs to have complete control. That control that will eventually lead to him desecrating the temple, stopping worship and sacrifice at the midpoint of the tribulation, and then proclaiming himself to be God. This proclamation of himself as God will be the sign for the second half of the tribulation to begin, and that second half being called the Great Tribulation. During this time when love between fellow men grows cold, lawlessness abounds, the Lord will offer comfort and hope to the tribulation saints who trust in him. This is the same comfort he offered to his disciples in Matthew 24 in verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. These words are meant to assure them that there would be an end to the tribulation. We know that Daniel said that it would last exactly seven years to the day. And our God, by the way, is always on time and exact. The word endure was not an admonition to hang on until the end. It was a promise of rescue for those who live through these terrible days. You see, since the tribulation is a time of death and destruction, the term rescue would seem very appropriate. Our next session will focus on the Great Tribulation and the last three years of the Tribulation uh, that will then end when the Lord comes and rescues his people and the nation of Israel. It's my hope that this rather brief explanation of the first half of the tribulation has sparked your interest and motivated you to a deeper study of the events of that time. Sometimes we try to simplify scriptural truths to the point that we miss important details the Lord wants us to consider. But I would note that our God is a God of details. His scriptures represent a unity and cohesiveness that is impossible for man to duplicate. In-depth study of his word helps us to know more of our infinite God's attributes and his love for us. We should be truly grateful to him for allowing us to study his word. Please join me again in our next class when we'll look at the Great Tribulation and we'll see how the Lord will not only rescue the believers during that period of time, but we will then see how the Lord will return to restore Israel to blessings, covenant worship of him, and with him on the throne in the city of David, on the throne of David. Please join me at that time. And if you have questions uh, from what we have studied or you need some clarification, please don't hesitate to write us. Drop us an email at questions at congdenministries.org. That's questions at congdenministries.org. And I, I tend to let the questions build up till I have quite a pile and then take two, three days. And I will respond by email to you. So if you're watching this webcast, you have questions, send them in to us and we'll be glad to answer them or to give clarification where you need it. Now, until we're together again, may the Lord bless you mightily until I see you here or in the air. Yeshua returns to Israel from
Yeshua returns to Israel. 